This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's a bit of a nerve-wracking time for contractors. Congress is currently flirting with the possibility of a government shutdown, as well as the potential year-long continuing resolution no one wants. Not to mention the fact that inflation is making it harder to conduct business and getting permission to increase prices remains difficult. For an idea of how to handle these obstacles, I spoke with federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. So, to be clear, at the outset, let me say I think that the odds uh, right now of a government shutdown are well under 50-50. Nobody's seriously talking about it. Of course, the longer the time takes to get a deal put together, the more that type of thing does loom large. I think what it really comes down to is whether or not Senator Manchin's uh, provision for allowing expedited energy uh, production approval will make it into the final continuing resolution. There are other sticking points and some details to be worked out, but that one issue seems to be the largest one that uh, people, frankly, on both sides of the aisle are staking out. Uh, So we're going to have to watch that space. Uh, The other thing I will say is that I think that you know, we're not, the, the Senate is not really moving out with a lot of urgency here. They're not really leaving in much time for the House to come along if they want to change anything. And while that may be intentional, it's also playing pretty risky business. There are some thin margins in both the House and the Senate right now. And if it were me, I would want to give myself a little extra time to make sure we don't unintentionally run into a shutdown. People trying to go conduct government business even over the weekend, you know, they suddenly find that they can't do that. You know, that would be uh, unfortunate. And I I, I don't think it would be intentional. In terms of government contract business, I think that uh, it's a distraction. It's a distraction during the last week of the fiscal year. Government agencies, government officials have to act as if there will be a shutdown. So they need to go through their continuity of operations planning procedures, uh, just as if there would be, because there there could be one. So those are the people that may make uh, also high level acquisition decisions or try to uh, have some impact on what their agency's last decisions might be uh, in terms of large projects. And now they're being pulled off into doing continuity of operations planning as well. So it's a distraction that could slow some things down at a time of year when you don't need that. Another thing that contractors seem to not want other than a shutdown is also the possibility of a year-long continuing resolution. Can you tell us again why that would be not good for business and not good for agencies either? It's not good for either because... Uh, If you're a government agency, it really wreaks havoc with your planning. In fact, if you're under a year-long CR, you really can't do much planning from your immediate future. You just kind of have to keep doing the things that you've been doing. Uh, And that runs into the big issue of a year-long CR for contractors. It really means no new project starts that use appropriated funds. So the longer you have government by CR the more you're just keeping current wheels spinning, you can't really get any net new projects started unless you can find another source of funding like a capital fund or no year money uh, that are gonna be in short supply and sometimes have 
some specific restrictions about how those types of funds can be used. So if you're a contractor, you're really hoping that you don't go a year without any new project starts. Uh, if you're the government, you don't want that either. We'd have to see if we got closer to this situation, whether or not uh, there would be some carve outs, say for the Department of Defense, because having a year long continuing resolution for the Department of Defense really would make national security preparation very challenging indeed. And I don't think that's really what anybody wants. Nevertheless, you do hear senior senators uh, talking about the possibility of a year-long CR uh, somewhat seriously. So you've got to really watch that space. You talked a little bit about thin margins when it came to time, but also the margins have been getting thinner for uh, contractors as inflation is wreaking havoc on different sectors of the economy. Um, and the news coming out recently, the GSA will try and make it easier for folks to obtain price increases through those contracts. But is that what we're seeing? And then is that what you're hearing? Or is it you think it's you know maybe a little bit too late for that? Uh, I don't think it's too late, but I think it's moving much more slowly than industry would like. And what it really reflects is a disconnect, a disconnect between the senior management at GSA who put the policies in place and thanks to them for doing that, acknowledging that there was a need here. Uh, and then the uh, people at the line level, the contracting officers and contract specialists who have a, uh, their own view of things and they have their own jobs to do. <clears throat> Contracting officers are the ones with warrants, after all. Uh, they're moving a little bit more slowly, uh, maybe not using the full authority that the new flexibility has given them to move ahead with uh, inflation-based price increases. I think most contractors understand that their GSA contract price is always going to lag at least a little bit behind their commercial price. But the more that lag happens now, the longer it takes to get those prices adjusted. That can really put a cash crunch on a company, particularly small businesses that really need that increase in order to even make payroll in some cases. So it's a little disconcerting to see You've got the senior management at GSA saying, here's the flexibility. The contractors are saying, can we please use the flexibility? And the people at the line level are like, well, we're not sure about how to use this flexibility or just really how much flexibility we still have. Uh, and that can be frustrating. And you know, again, GSA is trying to make maximum use of small businesses and attract new small businesses into the market. That's very difficult to do when you have existing small businesses that can't get the price adjustments they need in order to not operate at a loss in many cases on each sale. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough job for both sides. And, you know, if when you're guarding the idea of a runaway contractor on GSA side and those small businesses you talked about having to operate possibly at a loss, what can a contractor do if they're, you know, honestly trying to just get a price increase to <laughs> to match where inflation is going and they're still getting denied. Is there any any sort of avenue that they can take to, you know, readjust things or, or make another appeal? Well, sure. Uh, there's always a place to go. Now, you know, my first point of advice to contractors is to make sure that you're documenting your price increase requests to show that you've already invoiced 
other customers at the higher price and been paid. But even if that doesn't work, and sometimes it doesn't, you have contracting officers that want still more information. Uh, remember, there are, act, there are branch chiefs that all contracting officers report to. Sometimes branch chiefs can bring a little clarity to the matter. And even a little bit further up the food chain, there are center directors uh, that can hopefully uh, look at things from a more strategic uh, viewpoint. Ultimately, it is the contracting officer's decision to grant or not grant that price increase and how much of an increase they're going to grant. But if you need to uh, elevate things, generally, as a, as a general rule, I find that individual contractors are more hesitant to take things up the ladder than they should be. Uh, back in my days as an association exe executive, I saw companies doing that all the time. So if you feel like you've got a good case, if you feel like you're not getting relief, there is somebody else that you can talk to and try to get another look and maybe some common sense injected into the situation. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, Force and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure experience and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career perfect well thank you sasha and thanks to everyone for listening i'm shane canfield and this has been the lessons in leadership podcast talk to you next time Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.